This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 119 of the Dressage Radio Show, brought to you with the generous support of Horseshow.com, Charles Owen, and Equestrian Collections. This is Chris Stafford back with you for another episode of the Dressage Radio Show and a welcome to all of you around the world. We've got a very, very mixed uh, show for you this week. We, but first of all, I should in- introduce my co-host. My guest co-host is going to join me this week for the first time, Richard Davison. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Great to have you as my co-host. Well, uh, hi, Chris, and it's, it's great to be a co-host. I've never been a co-host on a radio show, so, so it's a new experience for me. <laughs> well, you're not new to media because you, you do the FEI TV commentary, don't you? I mean, you do get behind a microphone from time to time. Yeah, no, I spend my life behind a mi- microphone because I can just talk forever, really. So uh, you just tell me when to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> this is perfect. Just remind everybody, Richard, where you are in the world. Well, I'm in the middle of England uh, at a place called Staffordshire. Um, actually, an un- unpronounceable little town called Utoxeter, but it's unpronounceable for any foreigners. Um, and that's where I am. Very good. Are you from there, Richard, or did you just uh, set, uh, well, put some seeds there? I'm actually for about an hour away from here. As you can see, I haven't moved very far in my life. A place called Nottingham, that's where I was born. Um, so, yeah, haven't haven't moved too far. Well, no doubt you've still got a glass of something in your hand. If the Brits stop celebrating, I can't imagine they'll ever (laughs) stop celebrating. No, we're not going to stop celebrating for a long time yet. Um, And actually, I have got a glass of water as well as a glass of something else. Um, Because uh, you're right. No, it's not time to stop celebrating yet. Although... You know, I'm one of these planners and strategists that, uh, you know, yeah, as soon as we'd won that gold medal, I'm beginning to worry about, uh, you know, how we're going to keep keep the squad and the quality of the horses um, at, the, at the top end. And in fact, that night, I had a, a meeting till about three or four o'clock in the morning with the Dutch. Okay, it was in the bar for sure. And trying to learn from them. So, um, so yeah, we're celebrating, but I'm also doing some other work as well. Well, for anyone who's been in a cave for the past few weeks, uh, let's just be real clear about this because Britain did make history with their first European team gold medal and then two silvers to Carl as well. I mean, Carl's probably uh, been horizontal ever since, hasn't he? (laughs) Well, it's funny you should say that, actually, because (laughs) he's taken himself off for a few days. I think he's back actually today. Um, I won't say where because I don't want to uh, let his bolt hold be known but he's taken himself off for about four days and uh, you know obviously he sends me texts every day but um, I was slightly concerned with the last conversation I had with him just before he jumped on the plane and uh, anyway I think he's gone back to his teenager days because he he just slept for about three or four days I don't really believe he's just slept but that's what he told me (laughs) he was completely exhausted and has just slept but so I wasn't far off then with the horizontal no you weren't actually no but no doubt he came vertical just to sort of put the glass to his lips before he hit the horizontal again (laughs) well he has every reason to celebrate and you know as an expat 
Richard, it, it makes us enormously proud of where British dressage has come in the, in the, over, what, 10, 20 years. It's an extraordinary rise and continued rise. I mean, and due every congratulations for such a remarkable win over there. I mean, it, it, this is the beginning of, of, I think, the medal story, isn't it, really? Well, yeah, I mean, it is because we've, we've sort of dabbled in our European medals before um, and now it, they're just coming more consistently. But do you know what? I think the greatest thing is that I think that our, our road, if you like, to success can actually be an inspiration and it can be anybody's road to success. Because we know we're we're not a, a nation that's um, got a long tradition of dressage. Because obviously everybody knows we were galloping across country, hunting and racing and eventing, and and and, and that kind of side of things where we were strong at. So it's it it uh, you know relatively has been a, a new introduction for us. And somebody like me seems to have been in it since it started in, in England. And so it's great that we've actually been able to raise our standards and, you know, take on the best in the world. And if we can do it, actually anybody can do it. Well, you know, obviously you're far too young to have been in it forever, but it does also speak to our, Thanks, one, of our, Chris. one of our guests this week. You too, by the way, you too. Thank you very much, Richard. I wonder who has the longest memory. But before we dig into that, I want to also mention one of our guests this week is Sashiko Nagawaki, uh, Nagawaka from Japan. And Richard, you know, we have listeners all over the world and it's wonderful. To, to hear from uh, these less, nations that are less exposed to international dressage. And we're going to hear from Sashiko a little bit later on in the show about dressage in Japan. And as she is an amateur, and she also runs a website, and uh, we'll share her story with you a little bit later on. And we're, but we're also going to hear from Wayne Shannon. Wayne Shannon, of course, has been on the show before, Richard. Um, but he's taken over uh, from where you left off with the International Dressage Riders Club, hasn't he? Yeah, he certainly has. He, he has a grander title. Uh, he's now called, I believe, the Secretary General of the International Dressage Rider Club, um, and he's doing a great, a great job moving that uh, that club forward and and you know dra- dragging into the cyber age, really. Cyber age, indeed. Well, we're going to hear uh, from Wayne in just a second, and and some of the issues that he's addressing with uh, the, that club. But before we do, I just want to remind you about one of our sponsors here that makes this show possible, and that is horseshow.com, because you can now compete online just like you were at a regular horse show. You can get judged by the top judges and get the judges' comments. Just upload your home video and enter a class online at horseshow.com. It's a simple and economic way for you to compete with your horse from home. And it's also a great way to prepare for your next show, and you can track your progress during the off-season too. Horseshow.com features real horse shows for multiple breeds and disciplines. They are also judged by nationally accredited judges. So it's one of those things you can do at any time. They're open 24-7 online. Just upload your video, enter to win at horseshow.com. Well, as I said, Richard, Wayne has taken over the mantle from you at the International Dressage Riders Club. And some of the topics, I think, that are hot topics right now we're going to address. So why don't you introduce Wayne? Certainly will. Um, so uh, Wayne Shannon, Secretary General of the International Dressage Rider Club. Well, Wayne, welcome back to the show. It's been a while since you were with us. It's been, how long is it? It's several months at least. It, it, it is a long time, but I knew you were going to come back sooner or later. You know, once you, <laughs> once you get, the, once I have your number, that's it. <laughs> how are you? 
Well, I'm very pleased to be back. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Things are going very well, and it's a very active time in dressage. So I think it would be good to update everybody on what the International Dressage Riders Club is doing, and I'm very delighted to be asked. Well, good. Well, I know Richard's got uh, lots of questions for you, lots of ideas of topics here, because there is, as you said, a lot going on. Richard, I think uh, you've got a lot on your mind too, and you've handed over the reins to Wayne, so to speak, haven't you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I was only sort of the snaffle reins of the double bridle because I was the um, <laughs> vice president of uh, of the rider club for about 150 years, uh, together with Marquis Tatakrapan. And then um, I thought a few years ago that really there needs to be some new blood. And, um, well, Wayne was moving in and Kira had been there for a long time. And, and so obviously you guys have taken it over. So actually, Wayne, it's really good to get enough time to chat because normally we bump into each other at shows and we've got about two minutes to catch up. So what I'd really like to, um, to, to, to know, first of all, is uh, you've modernized the appearance of the club, as far as I'm concerned, certainly with the website. Um, how do you find that's working with the membership? I think it is early days, but it is working. The, the idea behind the new website is that we are, be, we're going to move towards, we are moving towards being a very communicative club. Now, we've always been quite good at presenting information that we get to our members, but it's been very difficult for our members to give us information. I mean, when you think about it, that's just because the way of the world, to send an email to you know, several hundred people is quite easy. But to get several, the input from several hundred people is almost impossible and to consolidate. But the internet has changed all of that. We now have on our website a poll area where we can get online in real time a vote on anything that is of particular importance. And the, the, what, what I don't know if you know, but part of my other life is um, uh, consumer marketing on stem cells. And a lot of the techniques we use there, I've introduced to the Riders Club to be able to communicate in two directions. So, for instance, we've gone into Facebook. Facebook is the, the, the biggest thing in the Internet for um, social media. And the IDRC, I set up a website, um, a Facebook page, and I emailed just my own contacts, and that's now got over 5,000 people in it. And that means we can actually get to 5,000 people who are interested in what the International Dressage Riders Club is doing. And I can put something out on there and direct them to the website where they can vote on any issue that is important. Plus, there are aspects there where, for instance, board members can talk about their blogs. What They haven't started doing it yet, I will say, but it's there ready for them to go so that when they go to shows... They can update and say, I went to this show. This is quite good. I found problems here. We've got the ability for members to join online so they can become members in real time. And I think that's the way we should use it. We should use the web to work for us. So it's, it's a 21st century club now. Well, I think that's really good. And, and Chris, you'll remember that I was on the FEI task force, um, which was really meant to look at the well, the dressage got almost from the outside in. And, and, and I can remember um, Robert Dover and I were very, very strong on the fact that any of these clubs are only um, really useful and effective if they can provide feedback from a constituency that is very, very wide and, and obviously global. I mean, the world's a very small place these days. And Wayne, I think, you know, what you've done there um, using that type of interaction is, is, is brilliant. And, um, 
we have to we have to try to have that mechanism whereby it's a two-way communication, not just with the yep. big guns that may be, uh, you know, European-based, or even the big the top American riders, but actually we need to know from every rider, from every international rider, um, whether they're you know juniors, young riders, ponies, or, or whoever. And I think you've got a great um, right. structure there. If- if you look at our membership, we do have the great and the glorious, you know, the top riders. But really, the sport is not just about the top riders. It's about the forgotten 5,000. And we yeah. are getting to those people. And the fortunate 500 who are the ones who do compete internationally, the vast majority of those we do either have as members or um, as uh, what I call website members, i.e., they become a member of the website, our social media site, but they are not paying members. And the idea is, of course, that we get them to become paying members, then we can bring our membership fees down. Because we don't have a lot of expenses, but we do have some expenses. We have to attend certain shows. We have to, and we do want to organize sessions for riders when they go to major shows, that they can come to us, we can have a meeting, and we can discuss the most topical, the biggest issues, and get you know, the, the, the personal feedback. So we, no, we do have very strong plans. Well, I know we need to get on with some of those those hot issues, but one last question on that. Uh, would you ever consider um, national rider clubs um, affiliating to the, to, to the IDRC? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. We've discussed this already, and we, we all thought it was a very good idea. It would be difficult to organize, but I think that is something, yes, I think it would be a very good idea if we could do it. That could, you know, one of the problems we've got is getting to people, getting to a lot of people. But if national, national federations could create those and then they could dovetail into us, that would be absolutely perfect. Okay, well, why don't we kick on with some of the, um, the hot topics that you've been facing? And I mm. was in Arkham uh, this year when you organized uh, a meeting with all the mm. riders and actually some uh, movement. A lot of judges. The national, uh, judges, yeah. And, and one of the discussions I remember from, from there, actually, with lots of aspects to it, was this issue of, um, well, I think, you're, I think it's been known now called the blood issue. Uh, yeah. And basically we're talking about when horses uh, bite their tongues or, or just catch the corners of their lips and, and have blood in the mouth, a la Pass of Val in the World Equestrian Games. So talk us through the, where, where you've been, where the FEI are going with this one then. The, the blood issue is a big issue. And um, the, the riders' club, the trainers' club, the judges' club, um, and the organizers, well, they don't really call it a club, it's called the Association of International Dressage Event Organizers. But the, the four clubs, um, three of us have a similar view and one has a different view. The, um, now, the issue is, if you see blood in the mouth, the judge at sea has historically always rang the bell and the combination has been eliminated. And it was discovered after, and really unfortunately, Adelinda was disqualified at the World Equestrian Games last year, that in fact, we don't have a rule. It's called the unwritten rule, which of course an unwritten rule is worth the paper it's written on. So it was decided to write a rule. The first, the first pass was, everybody agreed, right, we, we, we just write the rule that everybody's disqualified. 
But then the trainers club, and I think sensibly, so well, look, we should examine this and think about this because maybe there's room for an appeal and maybe there's room for, if it's only a minor nick, for the horse to continue providing it's under veterinary guidance. And they took, um, I think, um, a relatively sensible and lenient stance towards um, the blood issue. Um, however, the, the riders club, and I support the riders' view on this, um, I think we took a more purist view, which was based exclusively on the fact that it is impracticable to do this in real time without making it unfair to other competitors. Now, we have never heard of any rider being disqualified unfairly, i.e. when there was no blood. There has always been blood. We've never known a judge make a mistake. And I, I'm sure somebody who's listening to this will say, ah, well, I remember, I know one. But in international competition, none of us have ever heard of it. So if it has never occurred, then why do we need an appeal? In practical terms, to do an appeal is, is difficult because the organizer would have to have at the ringside on a permanent basis um, the show veterinarian who will then examine the horse's mouth. If there is a presence of blood, then the horse is eliminated. If there is no blood, then the horse can stay. And we just said, well, look, we would rather be whiter than white. We know this is a sensitive issue. A sensitive issue. Dressage often leads the other disciplines where we take a, a harder view or a less lenient view. Then why don't we say we will stand by this. We do not want to be riding a horse that's bleeding in the mouth. It's not meant to bleed in the mouth. We don't do it deliberately. It may have only bitten its tongue, but it happens so infrequently as to be not a major issue. And that is where we stand today. We are putting together our views on this. We've presented this to the FEI. The FEI is now going for consultation. And I believe um, the four clubs will be putting their view and they will, that will then go to the National Federations for deliberation and decision. Yeah, okay, because as I'm sure you know, because I've voiced my opinion in ARC, and I, I take a slightly different angle on that. Um, I think it's also a practical one, in as much as that I'm, I look at, um, well, actually, I think it's a political one, to be honest with you, because of my experiences of the FEI as a whole, how it works, that, um, uh, you know, the dressage. Um, uh, committee, if you like, is or, or discipline is just one of a number of disciplines. And I take the view that if you're going to say the presence of blood is a welfare issue, then I think it's a welfare issue in any discipline. It doesn't matter. It's not, not just in dressage, but in eventing, in long-distance riding, show jumping, and all the rest of it. And I think that um, to be practical about anything that will get through the national federations and the bureau of the FEI, um, all the disciplines are going to have to buy into it because politically, why would they um, agree to dressage proclaiming one statement if it actually would backfire on, on their own rules and regulations? And I don't think that's going to happen. So I think there is a there is a, a, a platform of debate where, whereby um, at least a number of, if not all, the disciplines could agree on a sensible protocol. And for instance, eventing have a slightly different protocol to what we we do. They have that possibility for it to be inspected or slightly more open than than we are tending to use in the dressage phrase. You know, and I and I'm up for. 
um, well, actually, what, what is proposed in the new um, regulations for the, for the NF for the NF this this year? Having read those draft rules, okay. The um, I think there's two points there. I don't believe it is just a welfare issue. If it were just a welfare issue, then it must apply to all disciplines equally. The, um, this is not really where we are coming from. Our view is a horse should not be bleeding if we take a lenient view and we allow the right of appeal and we allow the, uh, the steward or the show veterinarian to take a decision. They will decide that. That whole issue is then cleared up. This is more a practical issue that... In dressage, we have, what, eight minutes between tests. We had to keep going through. If you're the last horse to go, it's got to be a level playing ground for everyone. It's not practicable to make it the same for everyone. For instance, you know, if, you, if it happens to a horse at the beginning of the competition, he may have an hour before he's due to start again, and therefore the whole thing is settled down, whereas the person at the end of the show may not have that option. It's, it has to be the same. And if it's so rare then is it really a big deal? And that's our view. We would rather be seen to be whiter than white than trying to bring this into a welfare issue, which we don't believe it is. We, none of us want to make this an issue. We'd, I mean, even the, the rule change by the trainers club is very sensible. If the show veterinarian sh- says that the horse is bleeding and it's a problem, it does not continue. It is obviously eliminated. So this is not about the welfare. This is about practicalities. Okay, well, you know, we're finding common ground here because I've always maintained the only person that really can judge on welfare and fitness to compete is a vet and, and not mm-hmm. a judge, you know, looking on for 60 meters or whatever um, without any close inspection. So I, I'm fine with all of that. What I'd also say is there's a sportsmanship issue here as well. You know, if, if we accept that we protect the welfare of the horse under all circumstances and we we put the paramount there's also a sportsmanship issue that you know if people travel across the world and it isn't a welfare issue if somebody said you know they may nick themselves shaving but it doesn't mean they don't go to work that day or can't you know run in the race in the olympic mm-hmm. games it's, it's not a fitness to compete issue then i think um I'll, you know i'll give you some evidence that i remember riding in satogenbosch a long long time ago so i can't exactly remember when and, and the rider before me uh, had started several horses before me. I think something like the shoe started to come off or, or did come off, and they obviously had to retire. And the, and the judge was very sporting about it. And we got word out to the collecting room this had happened. They wanted to put the shoe back on, and they wanted this rider to go in uh, in front of me. And they gave me enough warning. And was that going to be a problem to me? And I said, absolutely not. And they just put all the riders back, whatever it, whatever it was in those days, six minutes. And I, I don't think that that was any big issue for me. Um, sometimes shows run late anyway, and, and I think we can all deal with that. And uh, so I, I think I, I'm just trying to not find the answer to this, because obviously um, we could go on forever just on this one issue. But I think there are a number of sides to, to thrash out and debate. Yeah, I think there is. But we can debate this. This is the consultation period. And I think the organizers have got a, a big input into this as well. Can they actually do something which would be doable? Can they, can they make a system that would be doable at a show? And that is equitable. Yeah. Then I if mean, they can... You know, that, those, those draft rules, I think it, like all these things, you're not going to hit it right just on the first time. And, and mm. it's possible that 
you know, whatever the proposal is um, uh, to begin with, it may not work quite right uh, or, and it may need tweaking. And then I think that's why rules have to evolve and we have to find the best. And let's face it, this is a compromise rule and it has to be a compromise for everybody. Yeah. But remember also, so, it happens so rarely. Is it really a big yeah. issue? Let, let's move on because another contentious issue, of course, has been you know the, the hat issue, the protective hat um, gear. And I mean, that's relatively a new uh, type of issue to come come forward. Can you tell us where we've got to and where the FBI are going with that? Yes. Well, the latest rule revision, which is due to come out in 2012, which is currently out with the national federations and the, the clubs for consideration, it says that hats will have to be worn by everybody. If you're over 18 and... Um, you're riding a horse over the age of seven, I think it is. Chris, Chris you and I'll be okay. We're, we're still under 18. That's perfect, <laughs> yes. I'm a little bit concerned, and I don't really want to interrupt your ch- chain of thought here, uh, Wayne, but my immediate reaction to this when I see those rules is why are they putting an age constraint either on the horse or the, or the rider, indeed? I mean, a head is a head is a head, and everyone oh, is vulnerable. Yeah. No, I need to finish this point. What, what they're saying is, just to finish the rule, then you'll hear why they've got it. If you're over 18 and on a seven, on greater than seven-year-old horse, you can wear a top hat or a bowler hat. If you're under 18 or a horse under the age of seven, everybody must wear protective headgear as is defined. The, um, so um, when you're warming up, when you're competing, going to and from the rings, you have to wear protective headgear, but it, if you're over 18 and on a horse over the age of seven, then you can wear a top hat or a bowler hat. So does that answer that question? Well, I, I did understand because I was familiar okay. with that wording, Wayne. But, of, of course, looking at it from this side of the pond, you will both appreciate that we re- recently, in, 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 just over a year ago now, witnessed one of our top riders in Courtney King Dye having that horrendous fall at home on a young horse without a helmet. And it has completely changed the culture and attitude towards the wearing of, of helmets, hard hats, in, or any, on a horse, period. You've got people re, riding now. It doesn't matter what they're riding, what level of competition. You've got top riders here that are wearing a helmet. And they will, I mean, they don't question what age the horse is, what age the rider. It has become de rigueur to be wearing a hard hat and not... Uh, not just a top hat mm. or a bowler or whatever, uh, because they don't give you any protection at all. So it's a very different approach to it now because of the experiences that we've had and the and, and we've watched too many people have catastrophic head injuries because they were not wearing a, a hard ha- a protective helmet. But Chris, yeah. how many have you watched have injuries while they're actually in the competition arena wearing a top hat? Well, As opposed to the warming up and the training. I think my response to that, Richard, would be why do we wait until we have an instance in competition of somebody having a horrific head injury because the horse spooked or whatever happened? But Chris, why it's, do we wait? I don't think that is the point. I think the point is there are other things that you should be considering in advance for head injury that are much more likely if you fall off a horse. The, um, the, I think there are more injuries to back than there are to head. There are no known instances of an injury to the head whilst competing a horse at FEI level in a competition. 
Yeah, I understand this, and of course it's a very long debate, isn't it? Because mm. I think people come from it from different experiences and, and perspectives. But I, mm. I'm, I'm trying to, if you will, appeal to our wider audience here of people that are amateurs, that are professionals. They're watching the professionals, their role models now, especially yeah. over here, wearing a helmet just to be on the safe side and, and top riders that are wearing helmets no matter what they're doing. They just don't get on a horse without a helmet. doesn't matter no, what well, they're doing. It, it's changing over here now, Chris, as well, and dramatically. And um, it, it's really interesting for me because, uh, you know, as you know, half of my stable is, is jumpers as well. So uh, the, the path that these crash helmets have followed in the jumping world has been really interesting because... I remember when they first came out, you know, and everybody said, God, they look like motorbike helmets, they're awful, and, you know, it's dreadful. And, of course, they are now a fashion uh, statement. I mean, 18-, 19-year-old girls have to have about 10 of these things, and they're rather like a phone. As soon as a new one's brought out, they've got to have that one too. And that's fantastic how they've caught on. And now it's, it's definitely caught on, I think, Wayne, in, the, in dressage, I see far more international warm-ups now with riders with crash hats. I wear a crash hat. Um, and uh, I think for those, for, for those of us older, we have to get used to doing it again. But actually, as somebody said, we stick it on your head at the beginning of the day and you take it off at lunchtime and, you know, you don't, you don't notice you've got it on. And, you know, I, I'm completely fine, to be honest, with that rule. I'm not sure I'd go quite that far Chris and say that you've got to wear that crash hat or it's got to be compulsory in the arena I'm, I'm for doing things you know a step at a time and I think that it sounds pretty sensible step to me get riders you know riding with them in the warm up first and um, uh, you know I, I think it's fine I, I think you, you wander back from a, a warm up arena you know on tarmac paths or roads it, it, you're not all the time on sand uh, and easily horses can slip and you can have a fall and uh, I think we underestimate how dangerous sometimes the situations we put ourselves in well to play the devil's advocate while I've got you two boys on, on the show with me this week Let's compare that just in theory to the blood rule. There was no blood rule until Adelind was disqualified in the biggest arena, arguably, in the world for our sport, at the World Equestrian Games. Do we wait until a comparative incident happens, someone gets injured in the arena before we make the hat rule compulsory? Oh, Every sport has its dangers. And the question is, is the head the most vulnerable part of a dressage test? I mean, there is no evidence to say it is. There are other more vulnerable parts. Why don't we make those the ones? Oh, I'm not, I'm not by the way, you should know I do wear a hat when I'm riding at home. The, um, the point is, though, that a lot of people who do this don't have the protection they could have. I mean, maybe they should be wearing a body protector. Well, I was going to say, I mean, Chris, on that one, we'll be all be wearing point, uh, you know, inflatable jackets, and which will go off in the middle of the pirouette. Um, so, you know, where are we going to stop on this one? And, and why, one. why can't we do it a little bit on what is the risk? How high is the risk? Um, 
Uh, I take your point, Chris, but I mean, that applies to everything we do in life, really, doesn't it? I'm sure it does, and I'm sure we could discuss this for another hour just alone, and it would be very interesting to hear our listeners' comments around the world, because I know you all have views on this, and it does, it does reflect the cultures, too, and, and the recent experiences, too. So please, please send me an email, chris at horseradionetwork.com, if you have any points that you want to add. And we will, I will, of course, bounce those questions back to uh, Richard and Wayne when they come in. <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be flooding in. They'll be flooding in. I mean, I think this is the difficulty with hats or blood. You know, there are different aspects to, to it. And there's obviously there is a welfare issue both to the rider and the horse. And it, we're in a bit of a moral dilemma here, and um, uh, and we've got to we've got to you know the whole machinery has got to move into into the right direction. But Chris, before I cannot let Wayne go, before uh, without asking him um, uh, where we're going or where his views are on the judging line, because I think everybody that knows Wayne knows that he's got a. a, a a very fast-moving brain, and he sees things sometimes, you know, in a in a different way. And I think it's really, really important to take our sport on and not to just carry on doing the same old things that we've always done. And Wayne, last year, the Global Dressage Forum, um, actually, I took a, a little bit of initiative here and and wanted to. Um, give, if you like, speaker's corner or, um, you know, on the orange box um, and, uh, to to the rider club and the trainer club. And now I think we call it in the firing line. What have you got in store for us at this year's Glo- Global Dressage Forum? What are the rider club, who are they firing at in the firing line? Well, we're not firing at anyone. We're firing at something. It's the same as last year. Last year, we we brought up the fact that the judging system that we have is, is almost impossible for humans to be able to adjudicate. And this, the, at the end of that presentation, we, remember we had three presentations. We had a Dr. Inge Wolfram who presented on judging biases where any judge is naturally biased just because they're human. This, this is not um, nationalistic or anything like that. This is they have natural biases. David Stickland proved that the system was maxed out in terms of its um, accuracy. We just cannot seem to get any closer than plus or minus 5%. Um, and that is not rewarding enough for riders. Riders don't work at that level of detail. They work much more granular, at a much more granular level. So we want to go down to how good can we, how accurate can we be? And at the end of that session, um, I don't know if you recall, but Tron Asmu, the dressage director of the FEI, said, um, what, would, what is a code of points? Because my solution last year was we need a code of points akin to something that they have in ice skating or gymnastics. And I said, I just pointed to those two and said, it's something like that, but which would be good for us, which would work for us. And this year, what we're going to present is a version of that. It's something which would be, um, it's going to be different. It's obviously going to be just for dressage and it's going to require a lot more work but it's going to be the first uh, faltering footsteps of a, a code of points for dressage. Okay, Wayne, but uh, I know lots of judges put hours and hours, if not months and years of work, into the judge's handbook. Yeah. So why do we need a codex? What's wrong with the judge's handbook? The judge's handbook is an enormously complicated uh, product. It's excellent in descriptive terms. But if I take you through just the passage, 
there are something like 45 different problems a judge has to look for in the passage, has to enumerate, and come down with a number. And that number is between 0 and 10. And when you look at the judges, you, you will sometimes see a 7, 8, 9, and a 10 for the same movement. Now, clearly, they're not seeing the same movement in the same way. So the reason for that is it is open to interpretation. And you can have uh, predilections or experiences which make you, the judge, go one direction rather than the other. And my view is that we should divide this into two separate parts. One part which is quantitative, which when computers are eventually good enough, they will do for us. Um, and then the other part, which is the uh, qualitative, which is the, um, the artistic side of what we do. And even in the Grand Prix, you know, the technical test, it, it does have a very strong artistic element, something which computers, I think, will possibly never really be able to do. That bit will have to be done by humans. But we do need this quantitative and qualitative aspect separated out. Okay, well, we're going to obviously look forward to that at the Global Dressage Forum. Chris, you didn't know this was going to turn into an advert for that, did you? But I'm sure you don't mind. <laughs> Not to um, the slightest, no. But just one last question to Wayne, because while you were talking then, I was reflecting. Um, there are an enormous number of judges that put so much time in, into our sport. And actually, it's remarkable, if that's the right word, um, how accurate they are, actually, and how they have worked so hard to get to understand the system. What do you say to those judges that when they hear these suggestions for different systems or um, just the one you've outlined then, that sort of their heart sinks and they think, oh, here we go again, you know, it's more judge bashing. Um, what, what, what do you say? Do they ever tell you that? No, we, we, we do have long debates as to how accurate they are. But never, when, I, when I've put these ideas before, most judges will say, oh, it's, it's too simple. We would never, you couldn't possibly keep our interest in doing, doing something as simple as that. And yet when we did a, a dress rehearsal at Arkham back in 2009, I think it was, the, um, they found it extremely difficult because there are aspects to that which take extreme concentration. And they shouldn't be at all worried, because it's not judge bashing. It's trying to give them a much better tool, uh, toolbox to work with. It's giving them the ability to be far more accurate than they ever can be. Remember, their training, you think about it, they've been trained to look at everything all the time. This is going to take a subset of that and train them to look at a subset which they're already doing, but then enumerate that subset far more accurately. And they have been trained perfectly to do it. Probably the new judges coming through will find it easier because they won't have to look at everything all the time, um, but they will look at some things some of the time. But they will be trained in everything at some point. So I think this should be... It, it's not going to be a problem for them. I think they're going to take to it effortlessly. But it's like half points. You know, We've got half points now, and yet how many judges just don't use it? There are quite a few still not using it. Can, Although, I just, you know, can I just jump in? Did you mean some things some of the time or some things all of the time, if you're breaking it down into subsets, Wayne? They will, what they would do is they would judge one thing all of the time for, say, one test, and then on different tests they will judge different uh, aspects of the same test because that is the way in which you can... It's, it's, the, it's the reductionist argument. If you have a very complicated problem... 
you always reduce it to simpler elements that you can enumerate. And that is the way which we have to do for dressage. It is far more complicated than judging somebody jumping on ice skates or a gymnastic. We, we have so many different moving things at the same time. And, and it's a, it's a very, it is a super complicated sport. It's miracle judges can get anywhere near the accuracy they get. This is a real, te- you know, the, the riders club came and the trainers club last year came out very strongly in support of judges. We do not think they are part of the problem. We think it's a miracle they get the results they get. And what we want to do is say, look, we want to support you, but let's go to the next level. Let's try something. If it doesn't work, we, we've got a great system we'll stay with. If it does work, we'll have a better system. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's a miracle. I think they, they the top judges, <clears throat> excuse me, those that have really worked hard, <clears throat> have um, have put hours and hours and months and years of, of craft and work to to understand the system. Um, <clears throat> if there's a simpler system out there, then then why not? Why not look at it? That's what I say. It doesn't yes. mean we have to adopt it. No, exactly. Well, there's obviously a lot of moving parts to this, and it's a fascinating conversation. I'm really glad you were able to join us, Wayne, and I hope you'll come back and give us updates on these rules and the things that are ever-changing in the sport. I hope you'll do that, uh, and we'll get, Richard, we'll get Richard back on as well. So uh, if we have any questions for you, be, uh, be sure to send those along in the meantime. Wayne, thank you very much for joining us this week. My pleasure. Well, that was really interesting, Richard, you know, to hear Wayne's perspective. And there's so many hot topics in the sport. I mean, any sport has issues to deal with constantly. And, uh, you know, I think there's so many different perspectives too. But so I think his use of the Internet is a very good one because there's only a few people that will actually step up and be on a committee. But you want to open it up to comments from around the world, don't you, with an organization like that? Yeah, I think that's really, really important now. You, you know, like I said, the the world's a very small place, isn't it? Really, and um, and and we need to uh, develop, take dressage, not only take it to all corners of the world, but actually hear hear their experiences and share experiences. And well, it goes back to what I was saying earlier that that our journey, Great Britain's journey to the top, actually could be any country. And you know, Chris, when I was out in the Europeans, I was I was absolutely dumbfounded at how many fantastic horses that I saw from all sorts of nations that are not traditionally strong in um, in dressage. Yeah, okay, of course they're European nations, but but you know Finland and Norway and places like that they got super horses, and maybe they need another year or another two years. But but I can see that um, I, I can see that this the the chain the power at the top of um, dressage is going to be changing an awful lot over the next decade. It's going to become I think a lot more exciting for spectators and well uh, all of us involved in dressage to, to follow. It is exciting because we're raising the tide mark all the time. As you say, you look around and there are so many more good horses and good riders. And, and it was nice to see the Russians back in there. I mean, you and I have a long enough memory to, to remember, Richard, where, where there was a time when the Russians were very much top of the leaderboard. I mean, in, in, in dressage, they were very prolific, the, 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 uh, the Russians and the Swiss. And things have changed, haven't they? I mean, they've, they've gone there. They're no longer in the medals. There was a time when they were always taking home medals, wasn't it? So especially at European level. Yeah, absolutely, and, and this is how it, how it is all changing. It's great to see them coming back again, 
And of course, you guys are, um, you know, moving from strength to strength. I mean, you've had strong teams, you've had Olympic uh, medal winning teams. And I think it's great that it does go in a bit of ebb and flow. And I think, to be honest, you know, the days when the Germans, we always knew the Germans were going to win that gold medal. Um, and then there was that period of time that the Dutch were always going to win the silver. So the only talk on the street was who's going to take the bronze. Um, whereas now, I think the whole thing is, is more open. It is. It's not so predictable, and that's a good thing for the sport. So uh, very, very exciting. So uh, obviously you must be... I guess nervous, excited, full of anticipation and strategy, being, as you said, the, the strategic thinker about the Olympics. It puts that much more pressure on the host nation when you already have a gold medal in your back pocket going into an Olympic Games. Much more expectation on the Brits now than there was two, three years ago. Oh, more expectation than there was actually a month ago, to be honest with you, because um we to have a home games i mean it's it's not a new experience for for you in america but it is for us well unless you happen to be around in 1948 <laughs> yeah exactly um and moving swiftly on and um so that that in itself that the pressure of the home games and an expectation is um is a huge pressure to be honest with you and we've been addressing that you know for the last year or 18 months of how we can minimize that pressure um and and interest in in hosting that um and, and the distractions on our riders well now that we've just won that european gold medal i mean it shoots us almost in terms of expectations to the top of the pile and um i'm going to be certainly talking to yogi breisner who's my counterpart performance manager on the eventing side because he's you know he's been through uh, european gold medals before and um uh, i think we have a lot to learn with how we got to keep the lid on this and for our riders so that they can go in there and concentrate i mean you know does this mean that if they win silver or bronze it's going to be disappointing <laughs> and of course it's not going to be disappointing um sport is sport and it doesn't matter which country you come from every newspaper is full of sport pages and the big stories are the shock horror this soccer team didn't win and yet they were meant to or, or this tennis player didn't win or the golfer didn't win and and that's what it is and and then when you add the horse factor into that which is you know even more uh, variable if you like um you, you know it, it, it they're not machine horses and nothing is guaranteed and certainly for next year nothing is guaranteed but you know, my job is to make sure that the team um, stays strong and and the squad, which is actually just as important, the depth of horses um, remain, uh, 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 you know, available to, to our selectors to choose from. And we keep improving the standards of those horses um, because we've got a very, you know, tough act to follow. It, it isn't just that we had a record team score for the Europeans. Everybody's score was, was going higher and higher, um, yeah, the Europeans, and and that's what we're seeing, isn't it, of the sport? Yeah. You know, we saw it with total apps going higher, 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 and 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 it just is going on, which is great to see. Yeah, we're raising the watermark. It's interesting you mentioned Yogi Breisner. I was you took the words out of my mouth. I was about to mention Yogi, as you said, he's your counterpart for the British event team, because the British eventers are 
you know, are used to being on top of the medal podium and they are used to the pressure and the expectation of bringing home those medals. What we saw last week, of course, at the European Eventing Championships was that the Germans uh, took control of things. It was an absolute whitewash. They won, won not only the team but the individual gold, silver and bronze. And, and, and the Brits managed a bronze, just, only just managed with a fighting spirit to hang on to a, a bronze, team bronze medal. But speaking to Yogi, uh, as I have done on on the show on the eventing radio show richard they they do or and certainly yogi has a very um, robust philosophy if you will to sustain that kind of pressure uh, when you are in the pressure cooker at the top of the sport so you know hopefully the dressage uh, british dressage team will will pick, be able to pick some ideas as to how you psychologically prepare your riders for that and for the expectations of the London Olympic Games. So that will be interesting to, to see. And, and you know, the, the, you can go home and close the door and have a glass of something at the end of it, but the riders have still got to take the pressure, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And, you know, when you talk about those European uh, championships, I mean, uh, my memory for that was William Foxpit, uh, you know, just about staying on uh, on one particular uh, sequence co- combination. Yep. And, and you know, that is exactly how sport is won or lost. And I think my prediction is for next year, I think the German squad is going to strengthen. Their horses are going to have another year. They're top-class riders. They're going to come back fighting, and and so are the Dutch. But I think, especially the German horses, actually um, uh, could have actually improved. Could could have delivered a bit more this time. And luckily for us, uh, they didn't. But I don't rely on that. And I think they're going to come back bouncing. And lots of people are going to come back bouncing. So there's no time for complacency in our sport now. And I think that's good for everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, to stay sharp. Oh, it is. That's what makes a, it you know, a competition. And uh, yeah, I think right away of Isabel and uh, and Santo, uh, the potential there. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Just one. Uh, well, that's another conversation, Richard, which we'll have when we get you back on the show. And but uh, just to uh, move on here, this week's show we've got another guest, Sachiko Nagoako, who's going to be joining us in just a second to tell us about the sport in Japan. But I want to remind you all before that about one of our sponsors here on the Dressage Radio Show, Charles Owen. They're well-known, of course, for helmets, but they also do produce gloves. They produce the Ruckel Chester and the Ruckel New Ascot Glove. They're just two of the stylish synthetic leather gloves that come with rain reinforcements and an elasticated wristband, plus a hook and loop fastening and tab for adjustability. The back of the glove is breathable, which prevents the build-up of sweat. It's practical and hard-wearing, making it ideal for everyday use. You can find out more about these gloves and all of the Charles Owen products. I wear their helmets too, but be sure to go to their website at charlesowen.co.uk. And as we said, Richard, it's great to see these other sport countries around the world emerging from you know non-traditional countries. And Japan, of course, is not one we consider when we when we think about dressage at the international level. So it was interesting to uh, catch up with Sashiko Nagoaka, who wrote to me as an avid listener to uh, some of the shows here on the Horse Radio Network. And she told us about what it's like over there in Japan. And, of course, she competes at amateur level, but uh, she has a good perspective on the sport and she maintains a website too. So let's get Sashiko on the line and hear about uh, dressage in Japan. Well, hello, Sashiko, and welcome to the Dressage Radio Show. Oh, hello, Chris. Thank you very much for inviting me. 
Well, it's great to have you on the show. Now, you're talking to us from near Tokyo. Tell me exactly where you are. Um, I'm, uh, I'm in Chiba Prefecture, which is about... And then um, where I am is actually very close to the new Tokyo airport. So you might hear plane flying, flying off, but it's about one and a half hour drive from the center of Tokyo. Okay. Now, you've been a listener to the uh, radio shows here on the Horse Radio Network for quite some time, so we're delighted that you will uh, talk to us from Tokyo because well, we know we have listeners in, in Japan, and we know they listen to the dressage show and the eventing and the uh, jumping radio show, but you're, you're, you, you do listen to different shows, but jump, to, uh, dressage is your chosen sport, isn't it? And you compete at third level in Tokyo, in, in Japan, I should say. Yes. So tell us a little bit about the sport, because I also want to talk about your website. You have a website. I want to talk about that as well. But give us a sense of what the sport is like in Japan, Sachiko, and because obviously it's not a popular sport in your country like it is in uh, other parts of the world. So... Uh, you know, how do you get into the sport, and how popular is it? I um, I hear about so we've got the Japan Equestrian Federation, which I hear uh, there are about eight thousand members, and uh, I started riding about uh, eleven years ago, but I had I had always uh, been interested in uh, horseback riding. But to most of the people, I, I guess the same in Japan, horseback riding is a rich people's sport. So I never got the courage to knock on the door and then start riding. But uh, I got the opportunity to go and then, you know, try out, to try. And I, I rode a horse for the first time and I liked it. And, but at the same time, I thought it's a really good exercise for to for you to become slim so that's I that's how I started and uh, ever since I started I think at this especially in the last three years or so I I feel I got the feeling that the riding population is growing and more and more are just uh, ordinary people like me are starting the riding and especially women, and uh, I think dressage sport is uh, growing in population, and also uh, jumping. I think we because the show jumpers are more successful outside of Japan than in dressage. So I think younger people, uh, high school or uh, university, they are going. There are uh, what I should say. I think there there are more and more, you know, uh, show jumping. It's getting higher in standard, and uh, also dressage. Younger people, they have good seat, and I think they are getting um, better marks in the in these days. So I sometimes envy the younger people. <laughs> so tell me about the prize money in Japan. Is there good prize money, good incentive, and do you get sponsorship for the dressage competitions? Um, 
from what I know, there are very, very little um, sponsorship and also prize money. And uh, the local local competitions that I knew, uh, that I know, uh, show jumping, there are some uh, um, prize money, like uh, um, $500 or $1,000. And if the competition has become greater, then I think probably the seven. 7,000 7, prize money is uh, uh, possible for show jumping, but as far as I know, dressage, I haven't seen any uh, prize money. And uh, I think we are getting very um, hard time finding sponsors. Yes. Do, what about media coverage, uh, Sashko? Do you get much coverage from the press? either in the newspapers or magazines or, or the TV? Is, is there much interest in dressage or other equestrian sports? Uh, uh, when, do you know um, Mr. Hoketsu, who participated in the Peking Olympics at the age of 67? Yes. Uh, he, so uh, because of him, at that time, uh, we got some uh, coverage. But these days, I don't think uh, I haven't I haven't heard any coverage. And, and but I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, but uh, these days, uh, there is uh, the reason why I feel the horseback riding is becoming more popular. Is sometimes we see not as a uh, high level rider, but as a hobby there are more and more coverage on the TV about uh, regular type of horseback riding. And, and so in terms of competitions then, is there always something for you to go to on a weekend, Sashko? Is, you know, is the sport popular enough that you can always find a competition? Oh, no, no. Oh, that's... Um, like the in my in my prefecture in the prefecture Chiba prefecture, uh, about as far as research is concerned, there are only maybe one competitions in in two months or so. So it's not easy to find competitions you know all the time. But you get to choose which one you participate. And and in terms of the horses, let's talk about the type of horses that you would ride. Are they usually imported from Europe or Australia? Where would you get your dressage horses? I guess um, a lot of people, especially in you know, higher higher level competitors, they import horses from Europe. And uh, but uh, for the lower, not lower level, but as uh, most people, I think they. They ride uh, thoroughbred horses that had retired from racing. Yes. And yes. So often that's an you know an opportunity to uh, give a racehorse a second career. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and and so in terms of the, I mean, a lot of countries they would have their stars of the sport, you know, the successful Grand Prix riders that would they would aspire to ride with and uh, to follow their clinics and so on. Do you have riders that you, that you can, uh, 
you can follow and you can and have lessons with that are internationally competitive? Um, as far as I know, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think there are many you know, clinics that uh, actually you know, top, uh, international top riders uh, give to um, most of the people. So I would imagine, like any of the nations that are, you know, not in the mainstream of the sport, they would have to go. You'd, if you wanted to be a professional, you would have to go maybe to uh, Australia or to Europe or America to get a, you know, to get immersed in the sport as a professional. Yes, I think uh, yes, that is the case. Most of the people, I guess. Yes. Yes. So you're riding at third level. How often would you have a competition? Then you said it's it's very hard to find competitions. Do you mm-hmm. compete at every opportunity then, since there are so few of them? Um, so within Chiba Prefecture, we have uh, the ones the association uh, federation, the Chiba Chiba Equestrian Federation. They've got two two in the uh, in the springtime and two in the in the fall. So I would compete uh, four times a year, but uh, at this time I haven't uh, competed for about a year because of my physical uh, reasons. Well, but you're also very busy, as I said earlier. You have a website. Tell us about the website because it's all in Japanese, and forgive me, I don't, uh, I don't know Japanese, and I'm not able to read it. But it looked like it was very well laid out. Obviously, you've put a lot of work into it. Tell us about the content for your website, Shasko. Okay, thank you. So the the website I've got is just a blog. But uh, uh, this blog is within a horse community, riders community. So uh, that credit goes to someone else who organizes and then runs that website. But uh, that is called uh, Toel, Toel. And I don't know how many, how many uh, what do you call, sign-ins they've got. But that website started about uh, maybe, as far as I know, six years ago or so. And uh, when I first uh, found that found out that website, I was shocked because someone is far ahead of me because that is the kind of thing I wanted to do. But for for that uh, website uh, in my blog, I introduce uh, what is happening in the equestrian world outside of Japan. And that must be really very useful, I would think, when you are an isolated nation in terms of the sport's popularity and development, that you have the internet to access what is happening around the world in the sport, to see what is actually possible. That must be very inspirational, I would think. Uh, and do you get a lot of visitors to the website, uh, Sachko? Yes, um, I, I get about 250 a day. Wow, well, well now, and 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 where where is the popu- main population of equestrian sport then in Japan? Is it in the south? Is it around Tokyo or around the cities? I think uh, around Tokyo is the most, but that also in the west side uh, near Osaka area. And I hope you were nowhere near the earthquake then in. Uh, 
what in while you were you in were you in in Tokyo at the time of the earthquake? Yes, uh, that was the biggest earthquake I experienced in my life, and I went underneath the table because it was so terrifying. Oh my goodness! It must have been absolutely frightening. How about the horses? Were were you with horses at the time, or, or did you know where the horses were? Were they okay? Um, in my the stable that I keep my horse, uh, everything was okay, and also in the prefecture it was okay. So the the biggest damage was uh, more in the north area. I hear there are a lot of horses, you know, which was. Um, um, a victim of the tsunami. Really? Yes, I, I can only imagine. And of course, if, you may have heard on the show that uh, Brett Parbury, the Australian rider, he was actually in yes. in the area. Did you hear that episode? Yes, yes, and I heard. Yeah. So he was very lucky to get to get out uh, just in time. But um, not everyone was, and, I'm, and obviously we all felt for you because it was such a tragedy. But uh, it sounds as if you're now well south in, in, in Tokyo. And uh, is that where you're from originally, Sachiko? No, I'm originally from Hiroshima Prefecture, which is uh, in the west side of Japan. Okay, great. Well, I know that you're a big uh, fan of the sport and that you've been over to the States, to Vegas, for lots of the World Cups, haven't you? And uh, uh, you, you, you travel to follow the sport, even if you, if you can't get the international competition at home, you make sure you go to it and enjoy it in other parts of the world. Yes. Absolutely. Well, good for you. Well, great to talk to you, Sachiko. Thank you very much for being a, a loyal listener to the shows here on the Horse Radio Network. We appreciate that and uh, hope you enjoy the future episodes here and, uh, and, and good luck with your website too. Okay, thank you very much. Well, my thanks again to Sashiko. You know, as, as you said, Richard, these countries are emerging everywhere. You know, you get good horses, you get these people that will prepare to travel like Sashiko does, follows the sport internationally. The clinicians that are traveling all over the world constantly. Do you do much traveling outside of England to do clinics, Richard? Do you have time? At, at the moment, I can't do any because of, you know, my team manager, team captain job here. Um, and so really I've had to cut down a lot of, uh, a lot of the training, even actually uh, at home, to be honest with you. But um, I would say I'm looking forward to retiring <laughs> and then I can go around all those nice hot countries. Well, it's going to be a, you're going to be a long time off retiring. Tell us what's in store for British dressage then in the, in the, for the full season. Well, um, we've got our National Dressage Championships coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Um, I know Carl is, is going there. Uh, I'm not actually competing there, but my wife Gillian is, and I'm doing some demonstrations there. Um, some, of, some of our team horses will have a break, and uh, you know, others will keep going, basically. But it's always a really, really good um, viewing ground, the National Championships. It's sort of wall-to-wall dressage. And uh, it goes on for about four days from 7 o'clock in the morning or 7.30 in the morning till dusk. And the thing that I've noticed, Chris, which is probably not surprising, is that over the years I I trundle off down there and I look around that warm-up arena and I just don't spot any, well, certainly don't spot any bad horse or plain horse or even normal horse. 
that that I, I just see lots and lots of really high class quality horses. Okay, they're they're ridden at different levels, and I mean they are different levels from sort of novice to, to Grand Prix, but really nice quality horses. So it's it's really good to go and watch and see how the standards improved. Um, so that's that's what's going on in the next couple of weeks. Um, and where, are British, where are they held? Where are they held, Richard? The national- well, they're there at Stoneley, which you'll remember. Stoneley mm-hmm. used to be the home of our national equestrian centre, which doesn't have the indoor school complex that they used to have, um, but it has got a, a vast outdoor arena now. Um, and the one outdoor arena basically hosts the, let me see now, uh, two or three competition arenas and also the warm-up. Um, so, so it's action-packed there. Um, always a bit touch-and-go in late September, whether it's going to be boiling hot or pouring with rain or cold or mixture of everything but um but it is the final and the highlight for for most of our british dressage members and they they really work hard to get there they have to go through regional finals to get there and and it's tough it's really tough qualifying horses through at any level now we have this system i think we might have touched on it before when, when i came on the show where we have it called a restricted section and an open section and you could almost read into that as amateur and professional though it, it, it's uh i think it'd be better to say amateur and open if you like um and they're not strict amateur um definitions but that's the general gist of it um and and all all the classes are, are good to watch and, and interesting to watch the rising standards yes it's certainly our rising standards all right well We've got uh, just one more thing to do before we finish the show this week. But before we do that, uh, I want to remind you of our sponsors' equestrian collections and their Young Rider range of apparel. There's something for all our young riders on the Equestrian Collections website, uh, some everyday Good, great everyday prices and some promotional prices too with an enormous selection. So uh, visit those at uh, the Young Riders Department on equestriancollections.com or indeed you can get to them from the horse department. And remember you can use the coupon code HRN at the checkout and get $10 off your next order of $100 or more. And Equestrian Collections is a participating retailer of the Horse World Gives Back campaign. Well, Richard, we're coming towards the end of the show this week, and uh, I hope you're going to come back and uh, and spend some time again. I know there's lots we can talk about when it comes to dressage, and you're never you're never short of a subject or two when it comes to the sport. <laughs> well, I did say the problem would be shutting me up. No, but, well, uh, it, it, that, no, talking is a good thing for the radio. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd love to come back, Chris, as long as I haven't bored the listeners uh, to death, and I, I, I look forward to coming back. Well, absolutely. We will have you back on uh, in, in a few weeks' time, and uh, we'll talk more about sport in Europe. And, uh, well, of course, I always want to hear from you wherever you are in the world. And if you want to tell me about uh, the sport in your country, just uh, send me an email to chris at horseradionetwork.com. And also, if you're a young reporter out there, if you're under 20 years of age and you want to report on your show in your area, just send me an email and we'll get you on the show to report about it. And before we go, I want to say congratulations to Ellie Brimmer on our Facebook page. She posted the correct answer to the mystery quote a couple of weeks ago. That was indeed Debbie McDonald. So well done, Ellie. Don't forget you can check out all our show notes at uh, 
the Dressage Radio website, dressageradio.com. I want to thank all my guests this week, uh, Sashiko Nagayako and, of course, Wayne Shannon, and to my co-host, Richard Davidson, for joining me for, on the other side of the pond. That about wraps it up for this week. I will be back, of course, the same time, same place next week. So until then, thank you all for listening. Thank you.